morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Uh, so yes, I had a very good trip to the States, visit with my parents, and they're very grateful for the love and care that have been shown towards them. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing good reports from them. As far as announcements go, you guys have seen the Biblical Dinner flyer. So the Biblical Dinner is happening on 23 September, and there will be a meeting if you've signed up to help next week after service. So Bob's uh, putting together plans about how, how that's going to work and how to coordinate that. So um, feel free to invite people, and also if you are going to be on the serving team, that'll just be after the service next week. Uh, today is also communion, so if you're a born-again Christian, you are invited and welcome to partake together, and that'll happen at the end of this service. And I just want to thank those who are serving and giving and your contributions in countless ways to really uh, make this a, a beautiful body of Christ, where we see the love of God on display in supporting and caring for one another, and uh, it is a, a, it's like a family reunion every week. So it's just a blessing to gather and to rejoice in our Savior, who is awesome. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful day. Thank you for your love, for the love of your people, for your provision and your kindness, your grace. Thank you that we can call you Father, and that you are the greatest Father who ever was, is, or will ever be. And we thank you that you are with us, that you help us that you provided for our needs. And Lord, we pray for the contributions to the fellowship, that you would bless those, that you would um, just use us, Lord, as your instruments to sing forth your praises, to live and testify of your goodness, and to draw others to you as you've drawn your, us to yourself. And we thank you for our Savior, Jesus, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us and your word that guides and directs us. And we pray, Lord, as we open your scriptures today, that you would you would minister to our hearts, you would show us our need, that we would humble ourselves before you in obedience and rejoice without fear of man. But walking in the fear of God and the love of God and unity with one another, we would give you praise and honor today and always in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 1. If you've ever played a card game or you know, a board game, you can only play the hand that you're dealt. Part of the fun, if you like those sorts of things, I like card games, um, it's, it's how to best play the hand you've been dealt in collaboration or in competition to, to help your team or to gain an advantage, right? So you're like, well, this is what I've been dealt, and now I need to see how I can best play this hand. It could be a bad hand, but you could play it as best you could. Uh, and by God's grace, he has given us a life on earth that we never asked for. We never imagined, right? We, we weren't even here. And he conceived us in his mind. He, he caused us to be born of our mothers. And he's brought us into this world. And he's given us so many things that we enjoy and treasure. And unlike a game where things are dealt at random, because that would ruin the game if it wasn't dealt at random, Everything that God has done is included in his purpose and design. So all we are, all we have, everything we experience, he is fully aware of it. It's not random. 
It's you are not an accident. You are loved by your creator and our heavenly father. And as we grow and as we experience things, there is a lot of self-interest that can creep in. And it takes God and his word and wisdom to reveal our need to change, our need for him, the motives of our heart, our need for forgiveness and salvation. And because we live in a world that's passing away, it's likely we have fixed our eyes and our hearts on things that are also passing away. And we tried to find our fulfillment or satisfaction in those things, in achieving, in acquiring, in experiencing. And what looks like winning in the world's eyes, the scripture tells us it's all loss without Jesus. And in losing our lives for his sake, that's where the abundant and satisfying life is found. It's in him. Ecclesiastes 4, we'll see that Solomon, he's been looking at life under the sun, kind of to bring us up to speed again. Here's a person who had everything, and he realized life and the things of this world, they are meaningless. They They are passing away. They're empty. It doesn't matter if you win the match or the grand final. Well, there's going to be a new team next year that will take your place at the top of the podium and all your records and all your achievements are going to be forgotten someday. The same's true for servants and Kings alike. Everything you worked to gain, ultimately you could not keep. It would pass to another. And because we've been created according to God's wisdom, there is a, to everything, there is a season and there is a time for every purpose under heaven. He makes everything beautiful in its time and it's fitting we would rejoice in the things he's made to do good in our lives and to enjoy the fruit of our labor. That was the conclusion he came to at the end of chapter three. Like see that as a gift from God. Everything you have, everything you are, that is a gift from his hand that we should receive gladly. And let's be the ones who love God more than God, the giver, more than just the gifts. Praise God for being our heavenly father. So Ecclesiastes chapter four, starting in verse one. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun and look the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter on the side of their oppressors. There is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Solomon's exploring the mortality of mankind that all of us will return to the dust. And he's looking at the manner of life under the sun. So he's looking at life, not from a spiritual perspective, but just a worldly temporary perspective of life under the sun especially wicked oppression. So this oppression, it speaks of putting unreasonable burdens on others, cruelty that leads to misery, exploitation, hardship, and trouble. And he's seeing the tears of the oppressed. And he's like, there's no one to comfort them. There's no help or hope for them. And the Bible has many commands that forbid oppression where the, the powerful would use their strength or ability to oppress the weaker. And the fact that it is commanded, it's the implication is it's prevalent. It's everywhere. It's our natural tendency when in power to oppress. And specifically, it forbids oppression of widows, poor, the fatherless, employees, servants. 
It says concerning business deals in Leviticus 25, 17, therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord, your God. Examples. Pharaoh, he oppressed the children of Israel when he commanded the newborn boys be thrown into the Nile. Uh, He oppressed them when he refused to provide straw for them when they were baking bricks. And yet he did not reduce their quota so he could beat them when they didn't make their numbers. Right? He's the king. He's the judge. He is the executioner. And he used his power to oppress them. And they cried out to God. He, he stacked the deck in his favor so he could demoralize them. Righteous Naboth, he lived in the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And when he refused to sell his vineyard, and that was land passed down as his inheritance from his fathers, he didn't want to sell his inheritance. And Jezebel heard of it. And she sent some letters out. She's like, get some false accusers. Have a feast in Naboth's honor. Accuse him of blaspheming God and the king and then stone him to death. And that's what happened. And not only was his blood shed, but we read in 2 Kings 9, 26, the sons of Naboth were also included in the bloodshed so that there was no one that the land could pass to. There was no no one to receive the inheritance. And so Ahab went and took possession. It suggests that someone cruelly uses their power to oppress others. So under the sun, there was no comforter for the Hebrews. There was no tribunal they could go to. There was no protests they could make. And there was no comfort for them when their children died. There was no help for them in the legal or justice system. I mean, what was justice? It was injustice. It was oppression and wickedness. And the same was true concerning honorable Naboth, who was a godly man. And I can't imagine the heartbreak of his wife and his family, where here's a man who's standing up for God and he's killed by his own king so he can have a spice garden. You're like, how is this possible? This is awful. And he's saying, look at the tears of the oppressed. There's no one to comfort them. No amount of tears could revive Naboth. It couldn't reverse what had happened. Solomon also observed, though, there was no comfort for the oppressors. It's not just the oppressed who need comfort, but the oppressors. Sure, Ahab had possession of the vineyard, but what happened when he took possession? He went to it, and he's like, this is a good spot. Who shows up? The prophet Elijah. And he, he promised that God was coming in judgment for his wickedness. He's like, the ground that received the blood of Naboth it's going to receive your blood. And there was no comfort for him. Sure, he had this great piece of land, but there was no comfort when he was wheeled back in a chariot and he bled out in the field of Naboth when that arrow went through his armor. There was no comfort for him, not in this life, and there wouldn't be in the next without faith in God. So the oppressed and the powerful, they have no comforter under the sun. And then Solomon, he praises the dead. He's like, you know, I praise the dead who are already dead because uh, they can't be oppressed and they can't oppress others without comfort. Now, the way that it's written, it's interesting. It suggests that there are people who are dead who are not yet dead. They're still alive. They're dead. We see dead in a spiritual sense. The Bible confirms that's true. Without being born again, we are dead. But he says, the dead who are already dead, 
That it's better to be in that position than to have to endure this oppression without comfort. And he's like, even better than that, I praise those who never were, never existed because they never had to deal with the oppression of the world under the sun. Now, that's something Jesus didn't do. He, uh, he didn't praise the dead. He, he would have said about Judas, it would have been better for him not to have been born than to reject the Messiah, to betray him without repentance and uh, to die in his sins without repentance and face eternal wrath. Like that is, it would be better not to have been born than to have that happen. But see, Solomon, he's not taking into account the final judgment that all sinners would face. It would be a foolish thing to praise those who are facing eternal damnation for sin, right? Again, he's just looking at it from life under the sun. He's envying these people who are like, you know, it's just, this is hard. Life is full of oppression. There's no comfort. It's just better to be avoided entirely than to be here without any comfort. Now, praise the Lord. Life is good because it's a gift from God. Because God is good. Um, It is better to exist it is better to learn of God and rejoice in him forever than to dismiss or reject the gift of life. And Jesus has come as a savior to those under the sun without comfort so that we could receive salvation through the gospel, that we could be comforted by his presence and have the Holy spirit within us. So there is comfort Solomon, but it wasn't under the sun. It's from the sun, the son of God. That's who gives us comfort. That's who gives us hope and life that's abundant and satisfying when we are oppressed and when we are hurting. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 4. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. We can be oppressed or oppress others, but we can also be oppressed by our own sin within us. The hard worker, he's sacrificing much. He labors long to gain skills and success. And when he's well compensated for his labor, he becomes the envy of others and they wish they had what he had. I think Solomon, a lot of people envied Solomon. They envied his money. They envied his power and his wealth. And it corrupted those who aspired to befriend him and to receive good things from him. It's the, like sometimes envy can be a motivation. Some people, they want to be the envy of others. They want to be envied for what they have or for how they look or what they've accomplished. And how often has the envy of others, like I want what they have. And that's been a motivation to get us to work harder to achieve what we want. This is vanity and grasping of the wind, Solomon says, that envy's never satisfied even when it gets exactly what it wants. Because there's always more and our capacity is limited. We can only hold so much with our hands. And at some point, this is going to get a bit dull and boring and there's more to get, but it just can't fill us. Envy is the enemy of gratitude and thanks, thankfulness to God. And it's never content with what God has provided. It looks for what is not rather than who God is and what he's given. 
Solomon describes the fool, and the Bible defines that as someone who doesn't believe in God or take him into consideration with their decisions or obey him, folding his hands and consuming his own flesh. Folding the hands, when you're folding your hands, your hands are not working. They're not doing anything productive. Um, that's connected with sleep in Proverbs 6, 10, and 11. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So the fool is idle. His hands are not busy working. He would rather dream about being like Solomon. What would it be like if I hit the jackpot? How much better would life be if I had this or had that? but not actually working towards that end. While it's not true in every case, a principle is held forth that poverty can be a result of your own laziness or unwillingness to work. It can be a, a factor. Spiritual poverty of the soul, that's the result of doing nothing with what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Like Jesus has done the work to save us, to redeem us. And we're called to receive of that. Like, oh, like, not like this, but like, Lord, please, I need you. I want to receive of you. I want to receive forgiveness and salvation. I'm going to humble myself that whatever you hand me in this life, I'm going to take it as a gift from you. And I'm going to thank you. And I'm going to rejoice in you because you are faithful and good. And my life is in you. That's the, the perspective that we can have as followers of Jesus Christ. So the fool might refuse to work unless he has both hands full of what he feels he deserves. But he says, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. The wise is content with one handful, just a bit, as much as we need. It's better to have a little with calm than much trouble and strife and anxiety. But envy, it won't submit to this. It's like, no, there's something better for me. I deserve more. And it corrupts and taints what God has given us. It can't be satisfied. Now, Solomon is not condemning material wealth or possessions here. He's not saying that having two hands full must involve anxiety or trouble. You read of Paul in the book of Philippians. He said he received a gift from Epaphroditus and he was full. So he says, I received the gift, I am full, I am content. I have everything I need. He had learned contentment in whatever state he found himself because he was in Christ. See, Christ was his contentment. Christ was his peace. Philippians 4, 12 and 13, he said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ." who strengthens me by faith in Jesus. Paul, he could have one handful. He could have both hands full or nothing in his hands and he would be content. It didn't matter if he was in the, the palace or in the prison. He was content in his God. And God uses suffering to lead us to the abundant life that's found in Christ that we realize this is empty. This is without comfort. The, this money cannot comfort me. It cannot give me the peace that only Jesus can. Spiritual hunger is never satisfied until we have the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus. And it's by knowing God by faith, we know how to press on through the trials 
and difficulties of life. And when we're brought to the place of saying, I can't do this, then we can know that God is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for us, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the context is contentment. We can be content whether you have empty hands or both hands full. Verse seven, then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eyes satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. He's talked about the oppression of people and oppressing one another. He's talked about the oppressive nature of sin and envy and how it corrupts us from within and, and, and sloth. And now he sees people who viewed wealth as an end in itself and how it led to really being a, an oppressive taskmaster in their lives. It's like Scrooge in that 1970 film, the adaptation of Dickens' Christmas Carol. There's this flashback scene and he's in his office and he's laboring. And I was like, what is he doing? I don't, he's just writing stuff down and taking notes. And um, his fiance comes into his office to break up with him, to break off their engagement. And he snaps at her for discussing personal matters during business hours. You know, like, hey, this is business. This is important. And uh, in response, she just took the ring off her finger and she put it in those little scales. And it's like, blink. And then she takes two gold coins and she puts it, blink. And she says, see, if you weigh me by gain, I weigh very little. And he looked at it. And then she walked away. And so the old Scrooge during this flash, flashback is looking at his younger self and going, say something, go, go after her. She was the only woman I ever loved. And I let her just walk away. He just took the ring and looked at it, chucked it in a drawer, went back to his notes. There were more loans to be made. There was no, more money to be earned. He was looking for something that could never satisfy him. And it's not in a spouse. It's not in your net worth. It's not in the success of your business. It's in God that we have satisfaction. And he says, it's vain to be working your life away for money that can't satisfy you. And we read in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10 that those who pursue wealth make wealth their pursuit rather than Christ. It's to their own detriment. And this is speaking of believers. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The desire to be rich, the love of money, that is a snare. And that will lead us to ruin, even to us departing from the faith. So he warns him, be careful. Greed for more money, it skewers with sorrow. It's only Jesus that can save us from drowning in greed. From a worldly point of view, labor that cannot be finished is pointless. The results of our work that cannot satisfy us, it's meaningless. And so he's like, this is vanity. This is just grasping for the wind. You, you have nothing of substance from it. Scrooge's work was for himself. He never asked why he was working his fingers to the bone. Like, why? For who? For you? 
you're not even satisfied with what you have. And really, without insight from the Lord, we may not ever be able to answer that question honestly or accurately. Like, what, what am I working for? You can say, oh, you can have all these reasons and excuses, but is it for the Lord? Now, there's nothing wrong with providing for the needs of yourself and your family, but we cannot keep our lives in balance until we realize that God provides for us and we are called to do his work, that he is the one who has enabled us to obtain wealth. Um, and, he's, and unlike Scrooge, who was alone and just working for his own ends, Jesus, he was never married. He worked all the time. He always did the father's work, but he was never alone. The father was with him. In, in John 5, Jesus said, my father worked until now, and Jesus worked too. And his work was do, to do the will of the father. He said in John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Obedience to God is a key part of fellowship with God. You can't have fellowship with God unless you are obedient to God. Those things go together. If we want to be near him, you know, he says, hey, come take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart and in me you'll find rest for your soul. And so we must go to him, right? We must choose to come alongside in his work. Not what we think we should be doing because when you're yoked animals, you, you can't go in different directions and accomplish anything. Jesus was single by the world standards, but never alone. And we can kind of go, huh, like, oh, I'm not alone. God is with me. Yeah, right. <laughs> but no, this is, it's not a mind game. It's not a joke. It's, it's real. Like God's presence is real. He is with us in everything that we'd go through. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16, 32. He said, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus was not alone. The father was with him. He helped him. Not just the power of positive thinking. That's the reality for those who are in Christ. He is with us. We are not alone. You can have the gold of Solomon. You can have the wives of Solomon and still be totally alone because you don't have Jesus. Bankrupt of peace. Now the child of God, he can be in the debtor's prison and be free and rejoicing even being oppressed because we have Christ and he has us. And it's so good when our eyes are open to see how good God is, uh, the good things he gives and what he does. Job in the midst of his suffering, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you've ever experienced loss, know that that's only possible because God first gave. And sometimes we don't take, we take for granted what we have until we don't have it anymore. And that can be an indication that we haven't really appreciated or thanked God adequately for all that he's provided already. 
There's a lot we take for granted. And in my case, often I, I don't recognize that until I can't do it anymore or I don't have it anymore. Now there's, and this is, this is really cool, that there's more good that God has done for you that you never asked for than all the good you've asked him for that he has done. There's been many things, I'm sure, that as you prayed and asked the Lord, he has answered your prayer. He has, he has brought people into your life. He has opened doors of service. He has provided abundantly beyond what you could ask or think. But know that for all those things, they are dwarfed by everything that he's done that you never asked for, that you never thought of. He's protected you. He's provided for you. When you weren't even a thought, thousands of years before you made your mark on this earth, he was preparing for you. He sent his son to save you, to redeem you. He was doing us good thousands of years before we were born because he made a way of forgiveness and salvation before we came. John the Baptist, he said in John 1 29, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to take away sin that brings death long before we were born. So we could have eternal life. Turn in your Bibles to uh, John 14, 27. And these are words that have been ringing in my mind of late. John 14, 27. Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is right on the heels of Jesus saying he would give them the Holy Spirit, who would teach them, he would comfort them, and then he gives peace to his followers. And it's like, he didn't say, I will give peace. He says, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. This is present, this is right now. And so he's like, I'm giving it and I'm leaving it. I'm not going to take my peace with me and walk away. My peace is right here. It's in me. It's through faith in me. And so if we lack that peace, it, it is that we have not received that peace. And then he says, do not let your heart be troubled. We don't have to be troubled and we don't have to be afraid because of who Jesus is and what he's given us. He doesn't give like the world gives, who, who, who gives lim limited amounts. Temporary, that you have it now, but you won't, it'll be passing to someone else. No, he's leaving it with us. Will we receive it? Will we trust him? Will we believe him? Jesus was leaving. That troubled them. But he's saying, but I'm leaving my peace with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. It was their choice if they would receive it. In a world of trouble, in a world of oppression under the sun, we have a life in Christ that's free of trouble and free of fear by faith in Jesus. So what good gifts God gives? Forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, freedom from a troubled and fearful heart. This is the reality of life in Christ. And let's labor to enter into that rest. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. 
For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon observed good rewards and the advantages of uh, more than one. So two is better than one. God provides benefits for labor. In contrast to selfish greed, so you're working toward your own end. You're only thinking of yourself. You have two people work, living and working that way. It's not going to be as profitable as two people working together, united in a single end. It's like they can do more together than they can separately. I think about like moving a piano upstairs. Now, maybe there's some fit young fellas or ladies in this room that can just pick up a piano and move it up the stairs without damaging the piano or the walls. Like, excellent, well done. But uh, I am not one of those people. I, I, could, I could help. Um, I can reposition a piano. That's kind of what I can do. I can, like, oh, you need to move it that way. Just kind of put your body into it and shove it and hopefully you don't hit the wall. But two can accomplish what one person can't. You know, there's a truck. It says, two men will move you. Okay. There's, there's a reason why you need two. Because you have large, bulky items that are difficult to move without damaging them. There's other things that you can accomplish with two that one can't, like having a baby, for instance. There's mutual benefit to work together. The examples that he gives are like someone falls down. They can't get up. They've not, they're knocked out. They're passed out. Well, they can't lift themselves. They need help, someone to lift them. I think of people injured on the field, a sports field, right? They have a compound fracture of the lower leg. It was a, a bit of a dangerous tackle, and they, they, they broke their ankle. Well, people will come and lift them up. They can't lift themselves. And this is also true in a figurative sense. People can fall off the wagon of sobriety, and they find that it's difficult to stay on the wagon. They may fall off the wagon, and to have someone who comes alongside and helps them and encourages them, two people that are struggling in a certain area, they are encouraged and edified to support one another. It actually helps them to be helping someone else. Knowing that people are praying and, and uh, encouraging, that is a, a great benefit. When we support, it's, it's interesting. You, you desire, by God's grace, to help and support others. In that, you are helped. You are supported. The Lord supports you because there's nothing in us that can really help anyone but by God's grace. Really, I was, I was very blessed during my trip to the States um, seeing the church rally to help them, seeing the people come by and praying with them and encouraging them. And no, just knowing people all over the world are praying for them was a great blessing to their hearts. And uh, yeah, and it's one thing to receive that. It's also a blessing to give that. So it's, we're blessed wherever we find ourselves. Two are better than one. Two working together in faith in God can do more than hundreds who are just in it for themselves. We see that in 1 Samuel 14. King, King Saul is sitting under the pomegranate tree with 600 man entourage, right? These mighty men of Israel. Where, wherever he saw a strong man, he's like, get him. 
He's going to be part of my, my inner circle, my, my um, personal attache. They're mine. Jonathan, his son, decides to go up to the Philistine garrison that was in Israel. 1 Samuel 14, 6 and 7, it says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Jonathan, he was helped to do what God had put in his heart because of his armor bearer. Is like, I got your back. I'm right with you. Wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, let's go. You have Saul sitting under the tree, 600 men around him. Everyone in it for themselves. But then Jonathan's like, you know, the Lord may work for us. Let's go. And they decided by faith in God, if the Philistines call us to come up, that's a sign that we should go up. But if they say, we'll come to you, well, then that's not, the the Lord doesn't want us to attack today. But they're walking near the the garrison and the Philistines notice them. They're like, hey, come on up here. We'll show you something. Let's go. The Lord has delivered them into our hand. They ran up the hill, killed 20 men. And then the ground is shaking. There's an earthquake. The Philistines are all confused and fighting with one another. Because there were people, two, two people who trusted God. Two people who were willing to do his work. Jesus, he didn't isolate himself. He didn't need anyone, but he called disciples. Disciples, people just like us. People that without him could do nothing. And so he called them and he sent them out two by two to prepare the way as he went into these towns and cities. Two are better than one. And so Solomon has other examples of how two are better than one. Shared body heat. It keeps you warm in the cold rather than being alone. One might be overpowered by a thief, but if there's two, they could, you know, deter or fight him off. And as a second cord makes a rope stronger than two individual strands, well, three are even better. It's going to be stronger. And we see this verse commonly quoted at weddings. The implication is two people united with God in the covenant of marriage with God being central will provide strength. But really uh, the context isn't about marriage. It's something we could apply to marriage, but also other relationships that we have. And this principle for there being a good reward for labor of those who join together is applicable to the church. When we labor together as one, not just for our own ambition or our own desires or to get what we want or think we need, when we're working for the Lord and we're united in his love and grace towards one another, we we have this connection by the Holy Spirit who fills us, who helps us. And instead of seeing the church as an angle to get what we want or in fellowship, we are a contributor to the body of Christ because of the Holy Spirit who fills us and we can encourage and edify one another. We can help and support. And in helping others, we are helped. In encouraging others, we are encouraged because we're edified. All right, verse 13. But better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. 
they were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. As true as two is better than one, it would be better to be poor and wise, God-fearing and God-obeying, a youth than an old and stubborn king, a foolish king who would not listen to advice or correction. So let's see, there are a few youths here today, people I would consider youths. Do you know that you can live wiser than the most rich king? You can live better than a king if you humble yourself to receive correction. That's what Solomon is saying. It would be better to be young and receive correction than to be a king and have all this material wealth and not listen, to not take correction from people or from God. So live better than kings. I exhort all of you. Let's live better than kings. It may be when Solomon wrote this, he looked back upon his younger days and he's like, yeah, there was a day when I would actually listen to my advisors. <laughs> there was a day when, when I had a people that I would confide in and I cared about what they thought. But now I, I'm kind of past that. I'm set in my ways. His character had been corrupted by greed, wealth, and idolatry. And it's not an asserting self. That's not the path to glory. The world would say, assert yourself. Have confidence in yourself. Esteem self when we're called to deny self and to follow Christ. Now, the New Living Translation, it renders verse 14 like this. It's not, it's a little difficult to understand. Verse 14, it says this. Such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he has been in prison. So the idea that it is better to be wise and to receive correction, such a person who listens could be promoted to such a height. And we see that in Joseph, right? He was taken out of prison. He, he was a slave who was imprisoned, but then he was promoted to second in Egypt. So self-promotion, it won't get you far. Actually, it gets you nowhere, but when you take the low place and God says, hey, come up here, come up higher. When he gives you glory and he gives you praise, that will never be taken away. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, you have that forever. That's awesome. Everlasting glory, no one can take from you, cannot be lost. Rather than seeking great things for ourselves, let's seek and fear the Lord who is the greatest. Solomon observed that the young man taking the place of the old foolish king, he's saying, well, his authority and power is great, but those who came later didn't approve of him. And maybe the young man thought like, if I have this position of power, if I get this role, people will respect me. It doesn't work that way. Solomon realized that. He's like, yeah, you can, you can, they can be displeased with the previous king. And then the new king that takes his place, you're like, oh, this is even worse than before. We might feel that way about some of those in our workplaces or in politics where we just say like, isn't there someone better? Couldn't we find someone better? It could just be us. <laughs> it could be my own perspective. This again, it illustrates the vanity of life under the sun. 
because power and prestige, they are temporary. No matter how you try, not everyone is going to be pleased. That young man who listened and heeded wise advice, guess what he's going to grow up to be? An older man who may not listen to advice. He could actually be worse in the end than the king he took over for. So he's like vanity, grasping for the wind. We haven't accomplished anything. You know, nothing's lasting. Nothing good is enduring. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of scripture, the people, they are waving palm branches. They're laying their clothes in front of them and they're saying, Hosanna. That means Jesus save. And they were shouting joyfully from Psalm 118, 25, and 26, it says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And this is joyful, triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The people who welcomed him and celebrated Jesus as royalty in, a day, in days would be shouting, crucify him. Seeking the favor of people, that is vain. That is meaningless. It is, it has, it's vanity. If Jesus had been looking to those people to feel respect or to feel satisfied, he would not have been. But he was looking to his father who was with him, even when his disciples forsook him. And through his death on, on the cross and his resurrection, he would save lost sinners. He would provide forgiveness and eternal life. And as he's hanging on the cross, the scoffers are shouting at him. And they're saying, come down from, he saved others. He himself, he cannot save. Come down from the cross and we will believe. What they did not understand is that if he saved himself from crucifixion, which he could have done, he could not save those who believed. And so he was crucified. He was pierced. He was wounded. And it's by his stripes we are healed. So he allowed himself to be pierced by nails and thorns and a spear. So his shed blood could atone for our sin. And righteousness could be credited to all who trust in him. Now there's no man alive that can save himself from death. My dad was saying, um, you know, the doctors can't save my life. They can only prolong my inevitable death. That's all they can do. Jesus is the one who saved me. And so what an encouragement that is to me to know that, yeah, Jesus is a savior. He is a healer. And that sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, it cannot benefit you directly until you trust in him as your savior who redeems you by grace through faith. That's the only way that it actually benefits you. Two are better than one. You must be joined by faith to Jesus to be saved and have everlasting life, to have forgiveness of sin. And if you have not believed on Jesus or been born again yet, today is the day of salvation. You're like the one who's fallen, who can't get up. You need someone to come alongside and lift you up. And that person is Jesus. You can't wash yourself of sin stains. You can't uh, cut off those chains that bind you. It's him who sets the captives free. And at, as Christians, we who are born again can be at times like a wandering sheep who's strayed from the shepherd. We find ourselves weighted down with cares of this world, or we're in a pit of sin that we can't escape on our own. And so the good shepherd reaches out to you too. He comes to you. 
And like the prodigal must come to his senses and choose to return to the father in repentance. So we're called to return to our savior. The scriptures say that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's examine our hearts. We, we sung today, like, you know, God is looking at my heart. He, he does look at our heart. He looks at everything. Let's, let's us examine our hearts. Let's present ourselves before him in humility. Let's praise him for his sacrifice. Let's humble ourselves uh, in repentance for our sin. Let's thank him for the forgiveness and salvation he's given us. As we take of the bread, it represents his body broken for us, for you, and his blood shed for us and for you, showing by this outward act of receiving this, of partaking of it, of letting that go into our bodies, a picture of what has happened through Jesus' death and his resurrection, that we, he is now inside of us. He is giving us life. He has saved us, and we are united as one body in him. In receiving this, we proclaim and remember his death till he comes. So by ourselves, it's like we dealt ourselves a hand of sin that was guaranteed to lose, but through the gospel, we're redeemed for eternal life, salvation, joy, a life free of trouble, um, where it's like, don't let your heart be troubled. We don't have to be troubled because Jesus has left his peace with us. He is our peace. Could I please have the worship team come forward and, uh, we will receive communion together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship that you've given us by your grace. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that we are never alone because you are with us. And thank you that Jesus was willing to go to the cross to atone for our sin, to give us new life and to leave peace with us. That in Jesus, we have peace. He has overcome the world and everything under the sun. That there's no scheme of Satan or man that can deter or undermine your good covenant and promises that you've made. And thank you for the gospel, Lord, that gives us new life. Hope to the hopeless. Salvation to those who were destined to destruction. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And thank you for new life. Thank you for hope that endures and does not pass away. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts, that we too would examine our lives and see if there be wickedness there, if there is a departure, if there is, an, if there is envy, if there is greed, if there's covetousness, if there's a lack of contentment or peace. Lord, increase our faith to trust you, to walk beside you, and to do your work in Jesus' name. Amen.